Hello and welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. Before I introduce my guest today, I just want to thank you if you've been a longtime listener of the podcast and still hanging with me. And if you're a new listener, welcome. I know my theology, beliefs, and focus has somewhat shifted and grown over the past year since starting this podcast. If you've listened since the beginning, you know that's been reflected in the stories shared on the podcast. I know some of the episodes have been hard listens and a little uncomfortable, and I've lost listeners because of that. So if your beliefs don't always align with mine or my guests, I applaud you if you've continued to listen and encourage you to continue listening. This podcast has always been about sharing women's stories and how God has worked in their lives. Stories are powerful and have the ability to create empathy and understanding like nothing else. The more stories I listen to and share, the more I realize how important it is to listen to stories from people that are different from my own, and especially from those on the margins of society. Jesus is a powerful example of someone who took the time to listen and share stories of those on the margins in order to show just how far and wide his love for all people has reached. With that said, my guest today could not be a more perfect example of someone who has a passion for sharing stories of those who often don't get heard. Christy Lauren Adams is many things, a speaker, author, youth advocate, and ordained Baptist minister. But perhaps most importantly, she is passionate about youth advocacy and committed to work that affirms the wholeness and self-worth of black girls and women. In this episode, Christy joins me to discuss her new book, Parable of the Brown Girl, and her passion behind sharing the stories of girls of color that are often overlooked, unseen, and ignored, rather than valued and heard. By sharing encounters she's had with the girls of color, Christy reveals profound cultural and theological truths and magnifies the struggle, dreams, wisdom, and dignity of these voices we too often ignore. Well, Christy, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me in the busy middle of your busy day (laughs) from work and all of that. I appreciate your time today. Of course. Of course. This is the end, actually. That was, this is the last thing I planned. You must have an early, early start to your day then. Do you? Yeah, about today's, my first meeting was at nine. Okay. Um, So I think back in the normal world, it wouldn't have been that early considering our school day really started about 7.30, but in the quarantine world, it's early. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Early. And we're also in different time zones here, so oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's part of it. Well, <laughs> my listeners know your professional bio, so can you just share your personal bio day-to-day when you say work started early, what yeah. you do, all of that? So um, people always ask me where I live, and I tell them I split my time between, and it says it actually on the back of Parable the Brown Girl, um, it says she splits her time between uh, working at the Hill School in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and living there, but when I'm non-resident at the Hill, I'm living in, uh, with my family in East Brunswick, New Jersey, but what I do day-to-day, uh, I work at a boarding school, uh, that's what the Hill School is, and it's about an hour and a half from where I live, so not super far, but I don't um, I don't go back and forth every day. It's really just on break. You live there, right? I mean, yeah, we all there. have to. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. So, um, so if you're a faculty or a staff member of any sort, you live on that campus, but it's, it's a campus, like a college campus, you know? Okay. And, um, so they have dorms and, and then they have housing for faculty and. So it, what age is that? High school girls or middle school? Uh, high school boys and girls. Boys Actually, and it girls. used okay. to be a boys school. Um, and it didn't really do co-education until like 2000 or 1999. Okay. So, um, as a result, it's still about 60, 40 boys to girls, which is really interesting. Okay. And then I know 
you're also an ordained Baptist minister. Do you do you also work in that realm too? I mean, I'm sure you do just all the time working at the, but as yeah. far as preaching and at a church and all that, do you do that as well? Yeah. Um, I, I was doing more of it before like this year. Uh, my home church is uh, actually in New Jersey that my family is still very active in and there are church leaders there. And um, so, you know, when I can, I go back to serve there okay. at, at my church. But since the quarantine started, um, I haven't really done too much at, at all there. And everything has really been focused on the Hill School and the spiritual community there. And, and not just Hill School, just outside spiritual community sure. everywhere, you know, everybody I think yeah. is trying to figure out what the church is and how that is redefined now. So yes, such a good point. And you're pastoring all the time, really, if you, yeah. if you look yeah. at it. Mm-hmm. So good. Okay. And we'll get back into more of your calling to go into ministry and being an advocate for black girls and all of that, how you ended up where you are. But before we talk more about that, let's just start off with your story of your childhood, your origin story, where you were born, all of that, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And my family, uh, two siblings, but my, my sister actually wasn't born until we moved to New Jersey much later. So it was me and my brother and my mom and dad in New York, um, probably about until the second grade. And then we moved. It was sort of like the great migration when people mm-hmm. were moving into the suburbs and working in the city, but wanted to live, you know, with a little bit more space. So we moved to New Jersey. My parents were still working in New York uh, for a while, actually. My dad, until he retired, he actually was a police detective in in New York. He retired one year before 9-11. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. Like a year, like October of 2000. Um, And then did did do a lot of work at the World Trade Center. Coincidentally, his his retirement party was at the World Trade Center. Oh, my goodness. Um, Yeah. And uh, so anyway, so my mom was a teacher. And so New New Jersey was basically, well, I tell everybody, you know, I was was raised there and um, went to school and church. The church that I referenced a little bit earlier is the church that my family joined when I was like 10 years old, you know. but that was a hard, I, just from your book, what you shared, yeah. that was a really hard move for you because you went from yeah. Wide. Yeah. It was a dif- It was a difficult move that interestingly enough, I wasn't even, even able to articulate until years, year, years yeah. and years later. I wouldn't have said that or thought that when I was younger. Right. Um, but it was a difficult move because from Brooklyn at the time, Brooklyn was just mainly African-American, mainly Black Americans were living in, in Brooklyn. So I grew up around like a majority culture that looked like me yeah, and, um, you know, didn't really know too much outside of that. And, um, there were other cultures and ethnicities, but nowhere near where, you know, Brooklyn and New York is right now. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, when I moved to East Brunswick, East Brunswick is way more diverse than it used to be currently, but what it was at the time, um, it wasn't diverse at all, you know? Um, and it was a lot more students. I, I went to a small private school in Brooklyn. Um, when I moved to East Brunswick, it was a huge public school, and it was just a sea of what I felt were like white faces and me. Yeah. Um, and I just felt just really, you know, I felt different, but I didn't know why. I don't think I could, like I said, articulate that. And I was made to feel different as well. Yeah. So I naturally felt different, but then also it was really hard making connections because of that. And so I mentioned a little bit of that in the book, you know, being on the playground and being called the N-word, not really knowing much about the N-word. I, I couldn't tell you about it, but I knew it didn't feel good. And I knew that the, the kid was associating that with me and not playing with me because I was that. 
So it had to have been bad. And so, so, I mean, I'm a white woman, always been in majority environments, and it just, I can't, I can't even imagine, but it breaks my, I mean, I have an 11-year-old right now, and I just can't imagine. Like, it's hard enough at that age to be a girl, and it's like to feel like you don't belong or kids are making fun of you. I mean, and that's, we'll get into your book, but so many of the, the girls that you talk about, they just do not feel like they belong. And you said that, like, you hated your skin, your hair, your body. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you um, you grow in that, you know, when you you don't naturally come out like that. You know, I don't think I came into the school system that oh, way sure. or felt that way. Um, but the more there was, you know, antagonism or comments or start feeling, like I said, feeling different. You know, when you're older, you can say, this is why I am different. And this is this is what I can put these words in this language. I can I can put that. Uh, those things to my emotions, right? Or I can put words to how I'm feeling. Whereas you just feel that way as a kid and that's it. Nobody's there to really explain it to you, walk you through it, you know? And I think my family would have been, of course, my mom. Um, But I would just remember coming home and just keeping that in, Mm -hmm. you know, not, not wanting to share it or explain it. I think they just assumed everything was fine. It really wasn't until later, I think, that my mom, when I wound up transferring, I mentioned that in the book too, that I transferred from public school to to high school, I mean, to a private school in in the middle of my high school career. Um, Because she said, you know, you know, when I asked her, I said, hey, can I I go to St. Peter's? You know, my, 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 one of my best friends was going there. And uh, she, she said yes, very easily. And I remember, remember being like, wow, that was not difficult at all. But later in life, she was like, you know, I, I've started to get the sense, you know, like as years have gone on, I realized that, you know, I'd already been thinking about it. So when you asked me to transfer, it wasn't an issue. I think I first really realized that we've fostered and they've, always been um african-american black girls and is what is tell me what's the best to say i'm struggling with this okay you're talking tell this white girl like what is proper because i've seen it both and so tell me educate me on that you know and i talk about the nuances of that you do you do Um, yes african-american because there's a lot of girls that say well i'm not african-american i know and and what they're what they're saying for the most part some of them are saying that they are not a part of the that diaspora that 16 19 you know the beginning of of um when the first slaves were brought over you know for so long so many of us i'll say black americans that's really the the phrase right we're just embracing african-americans later later that was probably more in the 80s right because you go right see and that's what i was like in high school and and i that was what i was taught to say and so saying black was not okay and so now i feel like that's changing okay okay and a a lot of it is because people will get offended you know even just for me you know if i automatically say african-american you know and they're like wait a minute i'm from Haiti. Wait a minute. I'm from, you know, right. whatever, or my, I'm, I'm actually from Ghana, you know, right. and my, my mom is from Ghana and I just got here. So right. we wind up saying black Americans as for, as far as like sort of an all encompassing, you know, okay. acknowledging all of the different spectrums um, that fall within that, that umbrella. So, but I think, you know, it just, it sounds a little bit more politically correct to say African-American, which, you know, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong. I still very much use African-American girls. I'll say black American girls. So those okay. are the types of things that I'll, I'll, I'll interchange, which is, okay. which is, you know, interesting because it's the brown girl. I threw the brown girl thing. In I know. Other I, right. Uh, I know. Well, <laughs> and that's what I just wanted to clarify because I do think I'm not the only one that's kind of confused on what what is best so either is fine but I 
but black black American is something that you use and yeah I try to I try to use it to be mindful uh, intentionally sure right, of, yeah of those different cultures and and people coming from from different areas okay yeah. so <laughs> going back totally just derailed us right there but yeah. we fostered and they were always black American girls and I just young girls and I just I never realized just how inferior and how much they already started hating their hair and their body and all and that's when my eyes were just really opened and um so I think that's why your book is and your message is so needed and mentors like you to advocate for these girls so another thing with the fitting in with school part of your childhood that just really struck me too is you talk about you just felt left out like on school field trips and to museums when you were around so share a little of that because I think that's something we overlook too I just remember because field trips was such a you know it's a part of your elementary school experience I don't Mm -hmm. know if it will be moving forward yeah, right but at, at the time it was and I remember specifically going to Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty and and how much we built up to that trip mm-hmm. you know there was so much behind it as far as lessons so we didn't just go we were learning about it learning about the, the immigrants that you know were coming over from different countries and so you know there was a lot of build-up to see yourself when you got there yeah. and you know I just remember going to Ellis Island and seeing all the names you know on the walls and and um, the, the students, you know, looking through the books and looking to see if they see their names. And um, I remember one was like, look, I see your name, Adams, you know? And I was like, I don't think that that's, <laughs> you know, so, like. Right. So did so, you know at that age, like where, I mean, I know what you shared in the book, talk about yeah. where that really came from. Did you know at that age where that no, really came from? No, I didn't. Yeah. Not at all. And hadn't had much conversation about it, you know, as far as I was concerned as a kid, you know, it was just slavery, you know, Mm -hmm. Black History Month was really what we had to learn. And I knew about slavery and I knew that that, that's where some of my ancestors came from. But I, you know, I couldn't say, oh, well, no, this this is why Adams wouldn't be a name, probably the slaveholder or the plantation Mm -hmm. owner. I didn't know those things, but I knew that that was probably not you know. Right. Your ancestors that right. came over on that right. ship. Yeah. yeah. So so I just, do remember sitting sometimes. Yeah, I remember like just visually seeing myself sitting, mm-hmm. you know, when the kids were just, you know, running around and excited. And I just remember sitting on just one of those little, you know, benches in the, in the museum or whatever. And just, just there wasn't anything for me there. So. Yeah. And I'd like to think that narrative has changed or we do better now, but I don't know if that's always the case, especially in predominantly white schools and white communities. So, yeah. Um, and teaching history um, mm-hmm. is so like you said you were raised it was hard for you you were raised in a predominantly white school and area but I know you talk about the church that you went to mm-hmm. was mostly black which yeah. was good yeah. for you and so good for your soul and tell yeah. us just a little bit about that experience and your faith during that time and how it began to be shaped yeah I, you know I don't know where I would be if I didn't have that as a foundation. Um, You know, church was, was not Sunday morning for us. It was lifestyle. It was, Mm -hmm. it was the other life that we had other than what we did in East Brunswick at school and work. And so going there and it wasn't just about the, the messages or the sermons. Of course, my, my, my faith being shaped, I guess, as far as like theologically and spiritually, but 
also community and fellowship. You know, it was just so all-encompassing service. They were very, my church was very big on serving the community. That was my life. That was my lifestyle. So it was, you know, yes, we had Sunday school and church on Sunday or vacation Bible school, you know, or midweek study or whatever, but there was local youth center. We had a youth center, something called Underground Youth Enrichment Center. There was tutoring, you know, you had an opportunity to tutor younger kids. We had summer camps and there was just choir rehearsal and seeing my friends at choir rehearsal or if there was a play that we were doing, you know, we were just very, very active there and, and I'm, uh, helped. Yeah. And I'm sure like seeing, I'm assuming you had like impactful, like female black leaders. Yeah. That, so yeah. share, I mean, just share a little bit about that and the importance. Cause I do think it is, that is so one female and then two, they were black leaders. Right. I, you know, I recall seeing some tweets going around with people, you know, somebody asking, when was the first time you saw a woman preacher? And a lot of people, mm-hmm. it was much later in life. That was not the case for me. You know, our executive pastor was a woman. There were other associate pastors that were women. Our, our senior pastor was, uh, and he's still there. He's actually about to retire, a man, but his team was di- was diverse as gender diverse as far as men and women um but our second in command being a, a woman was a big deal and i just remember yeah. her she would sing we would have these hymns we would sing these hymns and when she would lead us in singing the hymns she would interchange some of the pronouns and it was always a joke with us because we knew yeah. that some of the men in the church hated it you know <laughs> well uh, they better get used to it right? <laughs> you know and it was so revolutionary for that time because we yes. talked about early 90s you know but that's what i grew up with seeing that. So it just, it never occurred to me really until seminary that it was an issue. (laughs) And I, right. And I bring that up because I think it's so important. I mean, I wasn't, we moved to the Bible Belt like six years ago and my listeners Mm -hmm. know this, but Mm -hmm. women in ministry is just around here, women can't be preachers or pastors or mm-hmm. deacons or elders. And that mm-hmm. has been a shock for me. And we've actually <laughs> since moved to um, an African-American church that it's okay. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's, I just feel like it's so important for our daughters to see these strong mm-hmm. women leaders. And that's why I brought that up in your story. Cause I know that was impactful for you. Yeah. Um, and yeah. how sad, not until you got to seminary that you realized like, <laughs> Oh wow. People have a problem with this. <laughs> yeah. Like, why? Ah, that's a problem. Yeah. Um, I know something else that I'll bring up that you share. I heard you share in another podcast, Truth Table yeah. podcast, which yeah. I love that one. But just mm-hmm. you were, when you were 16, that something happened that really did, I don't know, affected, strengthened your, tested your faith, all of the above with your friend oh, yeah. dying. Oh yeah. So my friend uh, Norrell that I played basketball with, that was the other thing that I did uh, pretty actively when I was that age. She was killed. Uh, there was a weekend that we were supposed to go to a basketball tournament for Memorial Day and it got canceled, I think, if, for weather reasons or whatever. And, and that next day, that Memorial Day, actually, she, uh, she was killed, but her father killed her. Mm-hmm. It was, so it was a domestic, domestic violence situation. The right. father killed her and then he killed her mother. I think actually he killed her mom and then killed her. And then um, there was a, they have another sister, an older sister who was away at work and uh, worked overnight hours. And so they kept her baby. And, but the baby, he left on the porch. Mm. So, um, so the baby lived, of course, thank God. But, um, it was really a big test of my faith because she also went to my church and was a part of our youth ministry, um, but hadn't been coming for some time. And, and my, you know, one of my last conversations with her was at the end of basketball practice, asking her, 
you know, how come she doesn't come anymore? How come I don't see her? And she said she really didn't believe in God anymore. And, you know, my response to her was, that's fine. That's cool. And so when she died, it was sort of a double blow for me because I lost my friend and lost my friend in that manner. And then, you know, I was like, wow, I have been going to this church and being a part of this, but it's, it wasn't in me. Yeah. And that was when I first realized that it was my first litmus test, you know, sure. like it's not in me. And I need to evaluate why, because it's not that in that moment I needed to preach to her or anything. It's just that I just so easily flippantly. Like it's not a big deal. Yeah. What do you? Yeah. Right. And I was, it's a rude awakening just maybe a few days, a few days or a week later where it was like, wow, it it is a big deal. And so when from that, did you start feeling your call to ministry? Because like we said, you are an ordained minister. So when did you, was that starting with that? Was that a gradual process? I think it started with that. Not, you know, oh, I'm going to go off into ministry. It really was more, it was a lot of wrestling, a lot of Mm -hmm. internal wrestling. Why do I believe what I believe? not wanting to just go through the motions anymore. Um, I had a lot of great mentors, youth, youth leader mentors. We didn't have one youth pastor. We had like mm-hmm. a, a, like a crew of adult leaders, mm-hmm. which I do appreciate. And they were women and men, of course. And I looked up to all of them and they were really responsible for pouring into me. So when I got to college and I didn't have that, I felt like that was the point that it was in me. So I felt like I needed to do mimic or practice the same things that I was getting from them. So that was when it started. My friends and I, were, we started a, we started a performing arts ministry on campus because I was taking playwriting classes. I love plays and we like to go around performing. And I didn't think I was going into the ministry at that point, but I felt like I needed to do ministry. Right? Sure. And after maybe sort of like late college, right after I graduated, it was said, you know, I, I think I want to make a lifestyle out of this. I just didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't want to be senior pastor of a church and I didn't have any other real models or templates for what ministry would look like outside of a church setting. I just knew Mm -hmm. I was called to something. And you have used that. Obviously, like we said, you work at the boarding school, but I know Mm -hmm. you felt like you share in your book, you really felt a calling to be an advocate for black girls who find Mm -hmm. themselves on the margins is what you said. And so just share a little bit how you got involved, like the first job you talk about, because that really kind of leads into your book and where you when you started feeling that call to be an advocate for them? Yeah, I left Temple University and and I went to Virginia Beach. I was actually in a program, I didn't mention this in the book, at Regent University, a Master Divinity program. Okay. Um, I hated every second of it. I didn't want to paint it, so that's why I don't ever mention it because I I never finished it at all. Uh, But that was my way of like getting to Virginia Beach. And um, when I was there, I also was working and I applied to a... um, residential treatment facility and, and, and got a job. And I was working at a unit called uh, Wings, Wings, Women in Need of Guidance and Support. And so there was about uh, eight to 10, 13 to 18 year old girls on that unit. And majority of them were black. And just being with those girls for those months, I think I worked there about six months. It was like one of those places where it's like one step from jail, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, but they're, but they're too young. So they weren't going to go to juvie uh, right, right away. And um, they were, they were really locked in there, but I was treating the girls in the beginning, the way that they wanted you to, you know, not getting too close, just it's a job and they, that's, that's, they don't want you to get too close. So, but eventually I read their chart and um, just everything that they've been through, you know, being burned with cigarettes every time they misbehave to the, all sorts of abuse. Um, And I'm like, wow, these girls are literally in the corner. You know, nobody Mm -hmm. knows they're here of society. And they are products of their 
upbringing and yeah. we're, so, we're treating them like jobs, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's those girls, but it's also other girls too, that I realize are like this other black girls are experiencing this outside of this space. Right. Right. Uh, and so that, that was the start of it for me leaving there and saying, you know what, I know I need to be doing something in youth advocacy, of course, in general, but specifically for black girls. And like one of the quotes you said, after learning their stories, everything about your approach to working with them changed. And I think that's just so powerful. And like you said, applies to that setting, but so much more in the broader scope of life of when we know people's stories, it changes everything. And that is, I mean, that's initially why your book caught my eye and Mm -hmm. started this podcast because stories are so powerful. It just changes everything when you know somebody's story and you saw that directly working with these girls. So is that when you decided, then tell me how the book came about because your book you share a lot of these girls stories but you yeah I'll let you talk tell me how the book came about the book was years later 15 plus years later sometimes Uh, it takes a while to digest all of that and see God's purpose right and and there's been a lot of different places that God's brought me as far as my career is concerned where I've had the opportunity to meet other black girls and, and mentor and work with so whether it's LA or back, I worked at my church as a youth pastor in New Jersey um, or DC at Georgetown University. Then back in New Jersey, I worked at a counseling center called uh, Christian Wellness Center. There's all these different types of spaces that I've been in, but had an opportunity to, to be with these girls. And so I didn't think about writing anything. I thought, well, I'll create a, a conference or a one-day workshop. That's what the Becoming Conference is a conference that I started for, for one-day conference that I started for girls in 2017. That came out of that. I felt like I needed to do something. So yes, I know yeah. that's something that you created. So. Right. That's, it started there. Um, and then uh, I was approached by a publishing company about writing in general. And um, I just said, I didn't have anything to write about. <laughs> and um, <laughs> then when we, we brainstormed, I realized, oh, wow, I can write about black girls. Like I've been saying um, yeah. time and time again, that if I ever had the platform to share some of these stories or share what I have experienced as a result of being connected to them, then I would do so. I just thought that that platform was the Becoming Conference, like I said. Right. Um, and then it was in that moment that I realized, oh, wow, it's the book. It's this book. And so I felt like I could do it there. And I wrote a proposal and she was excited. She took it back and it was rejected by the first publishing company. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Which that, I heard. And so, yes. And that's just such but, an example. Tell what they right. told you. Well, um, that the team went back to uh, the woman that I had been talking to and said um, that they felt like it was a little too narrow of a demographic. You know, Mm -hmm. they wanted me to write about like all kids pretty much. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, see, this is, this is exactly my point. My point is black girls are always pushed to the margins whenever they're centered. And um, so that sparked something in me to you know, write a different type of proposal, but send it somewhere else. Yeah. And I think that's so important. And I'm glad you shared that because I think my white listeners are, we need to be aware of that. And that's, that's the plight that you have. And these black girls and your, the voices are so quieted and pushed aside and unseen. And that's, that's the problem with all lives matter. And it's like, Black lives have not always mattered and you guys have to fight for your voices to be heard. And so that in itself is just a perfect example of the fight that you have. So that spurred you on though, that like, no, this is going to happen. This is important. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also too feel like, you know, there's a sentiment that no, 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 we're not telling you to, uh, to, to completely remove yourself. We're just saying we want for you to share. And that's the issue. (laughs) They always have to share space, you know? Right. Um, Because a white 
person would not have been told that if it was all a book about white girls like no that's fine have it all like right they wouldn't even it wouldn't even be it's normative you know conferences that i see if there's not a person of color that is you know a speaker or whatever it's not really thought twice about you know exactly the time Um, But if if it is something where it's all black women on the roster, then it's like, well, wait a minute. Why is this? Why isn't there more diversity or something like that? You know? Um, Right. No, exactly. So you're aware of that. You see it again with the book, but you eventually you have your proposal. And yeah, Pets is a Fortress and another company. They both returned to me favorably, but I went with Fortress. Um, I love the history that they have with their writers and um, started and started from there. Started writing the same time I got my job at the Hill. So it was a little challenging to write it. And I experienced some loss while I was writing it as well. Um, so, but I think that, you know, ultimately I realized that there was a, I put it on YouTube. There's a clip of a, a girl that I did write about most, all of this anonymous, but her story didn't really need to be. Um, and she read the first, she read her chapter. She was in my mm. apartment and she's like, is this my chapter? And I was like, yeah, you know, go ahead. It was a PDF copy. And uh, she looked up at me and I was like, what? You know, after like 15 minutes and she had tears in her eyes and I was like, what's up? You know, she's just like, this is exactly how I have been feeling. And so I've always said to people in that moment that I realized that if I experienced any exhaustion or grief or just the emotions that I was experiencing as I was writing, it was for a purpose. It was to translate for them. That's um, so, so powerful. That mm-hmm. And I love how you use the parables because the book mm-hmm. is entitled Parable of the Brown Girl, Parable mm-hmm. of the Brown Girl, The Sacred Lives of Girls of Color. And tell us why you incorporate with parables. I mean, I know you talk about it, but why that was important. Yeah. I, I always asked myself what these girls would look like if they were in the gospel stories. And, yeah. um, Every time, particularly when I was working at the counseling center for those two years, because it really was just me and them. And then I would sometimes go home. Nobody would be in the office and I'd just be driving home and just think, wow, I just, I'm full off of my experience talking to these girls all day long, you know, in these one-on-one settings that no one will ever know because these are confidential settings too. And I was like, no one will ever know. And not only will they not know, but they'll never be able to experience what it is that I'm getting here. It's like church, you know, like by myself in the corner of this uh, in Somerset. And, um, and I used to say, you know, when I would be driving home, I'd be thinking to myself about it and thinking about, you know, maybe this is how it was with Jesus. He would just have these, these one-off encounters with people. Um, And sometimes there would be crowds around and sometimes there wouldn't. And they would be these such profound encounters. What if it's like, what if Jesus met one of these girls? What would it look like? Mm -hmm. And so I would just, I would just, I would have about a half hour ride home and I would just be brainstorming, thinking about it in my head. This is before I even thought about the book. So when it came time to write about it, said, you know what, I want to write it in a way where I'm inserting the girls because there's so many other stories of encounters that Jesus had that we have not read about. And then encounters that Jesus is continuing to have that we haven't read about. And I felt like it'd be nice to write it in such a way where I felt like I was inserting it. And then parables, you know, they, they tell stories, but there's lessons that are involved in them. And I also felt like there was something that needed to, that could be learned from these girls too. Yeah. And you did a, just a tremendous job of that. I mean, it was very impactful how you shared their stories, Bible stories. I mean, you just really interrelated all of it. And you just, I think, talked about so well as how just deeply these girls' stories affected you. Like you were 
supposed to be changing them, but they were changing you mm-hmm. and helping you see Jesus more. So some of the parables, um, the chapters are parable of the insecure girl, the alienated girl, the voiceless girl. Those are just some of the examples. So which one do you feel like, I know they all really impacted, <laughs> all impacted you, but is there one in particular that just really just just kind of impacted you the most? Is that too hard? I you, well, no, no, no. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going a different way because some people say, which one can you relate to? I have that down too. Uh, <laughs> so pick, pick, pick which one do you want to answer? You can answer either one of those. You know what? The, the chapter one was the one that impacted me. Okay. Um, because a lot of these girls, I was able to go back to and interview, re-interview or have another conversation with them. But the first girl was just one girl that I had a counseling relationship with for six months and never saw okay. her again. Okay. And that was the weak brown girl weak and brown her name. Girl. And that yeah. was Deborah. Was that right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that is, yeah, that was a powerful chapter too, because you're going against that strong black strong woman narrative. Woman. Yeah. So and she asked the question, you know, why did God make me a warrior when I'm really just weak mm-hmm. at nine mm-hmm. years old? Yeah. Um, so I, I felt that one had the most profound. And then as soon as I, you know, pitched the book, I was like this, she's definitely one, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was like that moment, it was definitely one. Well, I think that's important to talk about because I mean, that I think almost goes along too, which, which one can you relate to the most? Cause you share in your life, you really felt like you had to live up to that strong black woman stereotype and um so i talked to somebody else last week that felt the same thing and she pretty much ended up you know with a breakdown because of having Mm. to always put on that strong black woman front and i think that's something um that's important for us to realize like where that came from do you want to talk about that a little bit Um, yeah you know where where that came from and where why you feel like you've had or black women have felt like they've had to live up to that yeah, and I, I write about um, how it goes back to, I mentioned 1619 already yeah, in this conversation, yeah. but it does, it goes back to slavery. You and know? I want, and I, I know these things as I've read your book yeah, and yeah. Read history, but I want, I, I think too many, especially white listeners, unfortunately think like, well, we've moved past slavery. Like, but right. there's, there's so much that's, uh, everything is still here The the from that, you know, that you all are experiencing. So I think it's important that we know that and articulate that. So that's what I'm asking. Yeah. Right. I intentionally go back because it's important to trace the roots of something. Yes. Um, And, you know, the, the, the root, what we're seeing is the effect. And it's kind of like ancestry DNA. It's like, how far can you go back? You know? Well, the, the issues that you see in the black community, particularly right, you know, talking about black girls or black women, um, how far can we go? You know, in the mm-hmm. same way with, with ancestry and it doesn't just start in 1980, you know, right. and I heard someone once say that, you know, racism is in the, the DNA of this country. And mm-hmm. so, um, which means that it's, it's, it's deeply embedded. Yes. So there are some things that, and not just culturally, not for black people, just people in general, women, you know, yep. are still dealing with the effects of patriarchy, yep. <laughs> you know, yes. um, and, and patriarchy continues. Right. And so, but that's not something that just started, you know, in 1900, that goes way, way, way back. Right. So why, why would it be any different for us when it comes to uh, slavery? And so um, tracing it back to that and, um, you know, the effects of slavery, you know, if, if there was, you know, the way that families were torn apart, the way that black men were, um, hung, lynched, and, and killed, or sold off, or whatever it might be in the way that Black women had to continue to carry the family on their own. Yeah. 
um, you know, that, that is when that emerged, you know, having to suck it up and, and be that way. Not, it's not necessarily a negative thing in that sense. That strength is something that I think that needs to be like applauded, but at the same time, we have to go back and say, okay, this is where that image started, right? Yeah. For, yeah. for black women and that it continues to cycle and spiral and show up and manifest itself in different types of ways. Right. Um, so that's, that's where I got that from. And even, I mean, you go back to when you shared about your childhood and feeling, couldn't articulate it, didn't know that feeling of not feeling when you went to the all white school, feeling mm-hmm. you didn't fit in, but you didn't really say anything like that, probably because you saw your mom as a strong black woman and like, yeah. I have to be strong too. Or when you share about your bouts with depression, like yeah. it's something, and I think as women, we'd all feel that a little bit, but I obviously as a black woman, it, you can just see the narrative that it is so much deeper. Yeah. It's, it's, you see my mom, it's images on TV. Mm-hmm that mm-hmm. you think it's not a big deal, but it is, you know, it's, it's also lack of image. When I talk about Disney characters, right. And growing up and watching the, the Disney princesses and things like that. I mean, again, me not seeing myself in, yeah. in those vulnerable ways that can have an effect. Well, Oh, well then I guess I don't, you know, I would translate that as, I guess, then I, I can't be that way. It's not yeah. for me. Right. And like, that was a powerful, like you just said, that was a powerful chapter when you talked about that, because you're seeing all these white girls rescued and needing their Prince Charming, but not the black, the black girls. They don't, they don't need that. They're strong. They're fine. Right. So yeah, I think just all of that is so powerful for us to share and be aware of. And when we're raising black daughters, even as white women raising black daughters, I mean, that's a whole other, but I just, I have friends that are raising black girls and it's like, oh, these things that you bring to light are just really powerful. I think one of the, a, a chapter that was not because I could relate to them, obviously, <laughs> because I'm white, but it just opened my eyes to the stories. I mean, like I mentioned, we go to a predominantly African-American church now mm-hmm. and just the women I'm around and it's just the stories. It opened your eyes. But the, the one that you talk about, the fast brown girl, mm-hmm. um, because it goes back again to slavery that a black woman's body mm. was never her own mm-hmm. and the hypersexualization and i mean just it was just a really powerful sad chapter too mm. because you just realize like what these girls and so are experiencing and their body developing faster and all of that so can you just talk a little bit about that and just the value of i mean that you shared about the women that were slaves the breeders i mean just all of that yeah. it was a hard it was a hard chapter to read but you just see it's from again today. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out where to start. When you talked about the, the girls that are, their bodies are developing differently. Yeah. Um, that's something that we need to acknowledge, you mm-hmm. know, um, it's not to say that women of other, um, ethnicities or cultures don't have different body shapes. That's not it at all. You know, I mean, we always need to acknowledge the fact that we all have different body shapes, but when we're t- addressing or dealing with black girls specifically, more often than none, they will develop differently. It doesn't necessarily mean mature or whatever. They just develop differently. And if they develop differently earlier and they're, you know, 11 years old and they put on the same short that another, that one of their white peers put on, it looks different. But then adults, what I see is that adults around them will translate that as that as the, the black girl is being sexual. Maybe I should have translated what fast means because for oh, people yeah. that don't know, I guess I just said that. So. Fast is just a cultural, colloquial term that was, you know, it's not even used anymore, but it just, it's, it's, I spelled it F-A-S-S but it really comes from fast and it just, you know, the word fast and you're moving too fast and, you know, yes. Um, yes. So that's really where it comes from. And people used to say that 
um, within our culture, um, among ourselves, used to say that, but it's also something that's projected onto Black women and girls, too. Yes, and like you said, their, their body's developing faster. They're looked, it's looked down upon, like they're trying to be hypersexual, or it's just totally misconstrued, and that's because we're looking at, we're trying to put them in the same mold as all of it, the dominant culture, and that's just not, right. and I think this story, if you don't mind sharing this, because this was just heart-wrenching to read, but I think really the honesty of it shows how black bodies have been treated, especially black women's bodies. Mm -hmm. When you talked about Sarah Bartman, mm -hmm. that was just hard, a hard read because yeah. that just put it right there. But that's so many truths that we need to hear and know when we think like maybe things weren't as bad as we thought, or if white people think maybe things weren't as bad or try right. to. So can you share a little bit of, of that story? I know we're yeah. sharing lots of stories, but I think that's a powerful powerful example. Yeah. I first learned about Sarah Bartman. I didn't know about Sarah Bartman growing up. Um, I first learned about her in a, a feminist womanist class I took at Princeton Seminary and then just opened my eyes. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, this, this goes back to 18, actually before 1816. Um, that was when she died. But Sarah Bartman was a, a woman from South Africa um, and she was enslaved due to Dutch colonization, which, you know, was naturally happening back then. And, right. but her look was what people were fascinated by. She had very distinct features. Her physical features were very distinct, her butt, her skin, you know, larger, everything. And so they, they started calling her hot and top Venus. So that's really how she was known. People really just started recently addressing her as Sarah Bartman because that is her name and how okay. important it was. She was always known as hot and top Venus. And so she was showcased in a state, in a cage, um, because of her body alongside um, animals. Um, when After she was colonized and because of the, how fascinated they were with her, they like actually had her become a part of a circus. <sighs> and they, they showcased her. And I don't know if I wrote about all of it, but you know, she, they weren't paying her enough, but this whole thing sort of led to her, her alcoholism and she would, you know, how she would do, I don't know if it was prostitution or what, you know, yeah. on the side to gain more money and also due to her depression. And so it's interesting because you can, it, you can see the effects, right. Of like, even now you look at certain women, black women, right. It's like, why, why is she, you know, why don't she just pick herself up by her bootstraps, right. That's right. her apartment is the money you can, you can say, oh, she's, she's prostituting herself. Well, you see all of the uh, context around where that came from or those decisions. Yeah. But a lot of times with black women, people just focus in on the after effects of it. Oh, she's drinking. Oh, she's whatever. Right. So anyway, but it, after that, when she died, it, that wasn't even enough, the humiliation. Um, mm -hmm. Her body was dissected and, you know, all of her, her genitals or organs, all of that. And they were put in jars and displayed in a museum and exploited for people to see because they were so fascinated with this look that she had. And her remains were not um, sent back to Africa until 2002. It's horrific. Like yeah. it is. It's, it's horrific, but it's why we need to know and tell these stories. So we know, I mean, it just changes the history and we see the plight that black women have had to know that they were just disregarded, not even as human, that that's, I mean, like you just said, our racism is just engraved mm -hmm. in our DNA here. And that stories like that you hear, and we have to, we have to acknowledge, I guess, and be aware of, but I, how hard is that for you? Cause for me, I'm a white person and I'm like, mm -hmm. I can't even believe that. Like I can believe it, but that's horrific. Like it makes me like cry reading that. Yeah. So how hard is that for you as a black woman to hear those stories? 
Well, I'm hearing it again and again. Um, yeah, that's but, you true. Know, to go back to the feminist womanist class, and I love, I, I remember saying, why are they calling it feminist womanist? Like, I didn't really understand. The yeah. first half of the year, we focused on feminism. The second half of the year, we focused on womanism. But we had these small group conversations, just like you and I are having now, where we would hear these things for the first time or read them and really work through them. I yeah. mean, really be, you know, talking to one another. You know, there were different cultures and ethnicities in there. And, you know, it was great. And I just remember that that time in my life, um, you know, you, you, you have to work through the, the muddiness of, of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and be able to acknowledge the fact that it happened and that there are effects of it that still continue to happen um, and see it for what it is and be able to sort of correct it. So I'm not going to see like the girls that I've been working with, I wrote about in the book that, you know, were doing their dance, you know, at school and, right. you know, people were thinking that they were, you know, dressed this way or whatever right. it might be. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking when I'm working with them, I'm thinking Sarah Bartman, I'm thinking the history, I'm thinking about the feminist womanist class. I'm not projecting that onto them. I'm able to deal with them, work with them, because I know all that in the back of my head. Right. You know, it's very helpful. If I didn't have all that, it wouldn't help me be able to help them. Right. That's such a, such a good point. And going back to the class, feminist womanist, do you want to, mm -hmm. I, I know what feminist, I also know yeah. what woman, but do you want to explain that for people that might not know, or that's a new term to them? Yeah. So, um, the feminist womanist class was divided because uh, womanism was something that was um, based on the, the history and the everyday experiences of, of women of color, particularly yes. black women. Yes. Uh, and so there was always this idea that, uh, that feminism, you know, yes, it includes all women, but that black women's issues specifically weren't addressed, i.e., for example, you know, where we celebrate, oh, the history of women's rights, you know, women, the women's right to vote. Yes. Yes. Amen. But black women, you know, weren't, they weren't included so, in that or black. Right. So those are the things that we acknowledge in that class. Yes. And that's something I'm the more I learn, the more I'm becoming aware of is how much black women were left out of the feminist movement. And we're going to have a guest on next month to talk about that, because mm -hmm. that is a whole long, long conversation in itself. <laughs> that yeah. Your voices were left out again. Um, so but just in a nutshell, that's what those two terms or that term means. Yeah. So one more question, and then I'm going to ask you, we'll learn about where you, we can find you and the Becoming Conference and all that. But mm. just thinking about your book, and you would share bits and pieces of your childhood in it or things that you felt and remembered through these girls. So if you could go back and tell your younger self something now, now as an older person, an older woman, what would you, <laughs> what would you tell your younger self? Maybe through one of the harder know. parts of your story. And I didn't give you a heads up on this. No, question. no, I, love I honestly it. I love just you. wrote it. I just it's wrote it fun. down. I haven't it's asked fun. that one to any guest before, <laughs> but for some reason you, I'm like, that would be an interesting <laughs> one to ask. That's fun. I think I would, because I don't know exactly what I would say, but I would want to go back and free myself from feeling bad about how I was feeling. Mm. Like really just letting myself know that, like acknowledging what I'm feeling, like you, your feelings are valid. Right. <laughs> like right. that you're not just making those things up in your head, you know, right. um, they're actually coming from somewhere. And that it's going to be a long road ahead to, to deal with them, but you don't have to ignore them. You don't have to push them to the side. Mm. You're not crazy, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think I would, I would spend a little time validating 
or validating myself. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I spent a good chunk of time feeling bad about how I was feeling mm. <laughs> or feeling yeah. wrong or shamed, you know, or guilty. Yeah. That's good. That's powerful. That's a lesson. I think we all could tell our younger mm-hmm. selves that. And I think even advice for ourselves now, depending on the day or season that we're in. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us just in the remaining time that we have, Christy, where you can be found and then also the Becoming Conference in a nutshell, what that is, but where people can go for more information about that. Because I know that's a pretty local event. Yeah. Well, I don't have too much to say about Becoming Conference now because it's not happening. <laughs> oh, it's not. <laughs> Duh. I'll, I'll yeah. probably think about that. I'm so sorry. It's okay. No, it's sorry. Sorry. It's fine. It's ah. okay. <laughs> we'll have to start okay. back from square one for Becoming okay. at the end of the year, but but right now, everything's on hold for pandemic. But okay. people can find me. They're looking for me online on Twitter. Um, my handle is at Christy Lauren. And on Instagram, it's at Christy Adams. Okay. And my website is ChristyLaurenAdams.com. And your book, we can buy, you can buy it all yes. places. That, but I'm assuming, do you have a link on your website as well? Yeah, I have a link on my site. You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books. Okay. Okay. And we will put all of those links in the show notes like we always do. And is there info? on the Becoming Conference on there too yes, in the future when it, when it happens, yes. right? In the future. Yes, yes. So that is a conference for young girls. Is it primarily black girls that it target with that conference? Yeah, I say okay. it's, it's for, you know, it's mainly centering brown and black girls. However, okay. I say brown because other ethnicities, yes. Latina population. Okay. All right. Well, all of that can be found there. Christy, you've been such a lot of things. You've enlightened me, you've taught me, and oh, I just appreciate you. your voice and you sharing these girls' stories that otherwise would not have been told. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for listening today and opening your ears and heart to stories that may look different than your own. I encourage you to grab a copy of Christy's book and dive into more stories that she shares. The link to order her book and connect with her can be found at the Her Story Speaks website at herstoryspeaks.com. Her Story Speaks.